Welcome to the Change Creator Podcast, where entrepreneurs come to learn how to live their truth, get rich, and make a massive difference in the world. I'm your host, Adam Force, co-founder at Change Creator and co-creator of the Captivate Method. Each week, we talk to experts about leadership, digital marketing, and sales strategies that you can implement in your business and life to go big. Visit us at changecreator.com forward slash go big to grab awesome resources that will help drive your business forward. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Change Creator Podcast Show. This is your host, Adam Force. Um, really excited for the conversation today. It's going to be a treat for you. Um, somebody that I've been following for a long time, and um, you know, he's got a ton of great books, but even more importantly, um, he is so uh, well-versed in the branding world that he built an agency that was valued at, I think, a billion dollars. He helped build the Amazon brand all the way back from the beginning, uh, Yahoo, um, and all kinds of other brands, all right? So we're going to get into a lot of great conversation about what really branding means to your business, right? This just couldn't be more important, and I think it's undervalued by a lot of entrepreneurs today. Um, And this is an area that, you know, we are focused and we love. So storytelling, branding, how they really kind of tie together. Um, So hang in there. We're going to jump into this conversation with Bernard Schroeder, and it's going to be really uh, fun. So if you missed the last episode, it was with Trey Llewellyn. If you don't know Trey, um, he is a guy, I think they've, I can't remember if they've made up to 50 million now, 100 million, but you know, he, he's done so much in the e-commerce world. We wanted to find out how is he picking great products, right? How is he finding so many um, opportunities that sell so well? Like he had a survival flashlight, which really um, was one of the, the early uh, items that he picked up um, out from China and stuff. They went over there and they got this survivalist flashlight and it became his first sales funnel that hit like $30 million. (laughs) It's crazy, right? So we're going to get into a lot of good conversation there. So if you missed that, go back and um, we get into a lot of good stuff that you will benefit from, especially if you're in the e-commerce world. But even if you're not, you're going to get a lot of good ideas on just marketing and how to think about uh, your sales funnels and things like that. Okay. So um, if you haven't uh, gone to changecreator.com in a while, check us out over there. We got some new uh, fresh updates and things like that. If you guys are looking for support building your brand and mapping those things out so you can, you know, we want people to fall in love with your brand, right? So that's what we want to help you do to create that feeling, make it memorable, build trust. Um, this is how we get loyal customers, right? People fall in love with brands, not just the products, right? Brands always win over products. And we're going to talk about that with Bernard. So, um, that's it, guys. Um, anything, if you're not following us on Facebook, always check us out over there. And uh, of course, we always appreciate your reviews on iTunes and things like that. So if you get a second, pop on in. And outside of that, we're going to get into this conversation with Bernard. Okay, show me the heat. I know you're going to dig this. Hey, Bernard, welcome to the Change Creator Podcast. How are we doing today, man? We're doing awesome. How are you, Adam? I'm doing great. Doing great. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, as I mentioned, big fan of uh, your book. And I, we'll get into some of the books that you have and all that kind of stuff. But um, as somebody who is really passionate about branding and storytelling, I wanted to bring your expertise to our audience because you come from such a rich background. So maybe just in a nutshell, just let people know kind of where you're coming from and what you're all about. 
You know, uh, I, I like to tell my students, I don't think I'm anybody extraordinary. I just was someone who leaned in hard uh, into branding once I, I started in marketing. And I determined that I, that once I, I learned that I liked marketing, then I wanted to be an expert. I was like, who are the experts in this world? So I spent a few years becoming an expert. And then I tested that expertise out, you know, on brands like Mercedes and Apple. And when I was convinced that my work was good and my thinking was good, then I created my own shop with some other co-founders in Silicon Valley. And, um, and that was an incredible run. And today uh, I run the entrepreneurship center at San Diego state and I teach uh, entrepreneurship and creativity courses uh, at, at the business school. You know, and I love hearing that just because he, you know, I, I talked to a lot of different entrepreneurs and they, well, I went to university and, but my teacher who was teaching entrepreneurship or whatever aspect of business never actually ran their own business, you know, which I always found a little bit baffling. Um, so it's great to hear that, you know, you're coming from a place where you worked with world-class brands and helped create them and built your own agency. Um, and now you're sharing that knowledge with people, which I think is, is pretty awesome. So um, let's just kind of kick off by getting everybody acclimated. So everybody listening, you know, here at Change Creator, we talk a lot about branding and storytelling. Um, and so Bernard is an expert in the space. And I'd like you to just define, let's just give a definition and start grounding people and what branding and storytelling mean uh, to you and the work that you've done. You know, this is a, this is a, this is a tough one. I mean, you can go to any party and run into anybody and, and talk to six different people and ask them for their definition of branding. You might get six different answers. Sure. Uh, my definition of branding is uh, it's an internal feeling. It took me years, years to understand uh, what that was because it's not something you can touch. It's this emotion. It's this, this thing that you can create inside of each individual that makes them more loyal to that product than any other. And that's the toughest part people have understanding. They want to point to something physical that is the evidence or the result of their branding. And while you can ultimately measure that in a lot of different ways, you can't pinpoint it, you know, on the spot. And so it's this, if I tell marketers, you need to create a feeling in your customers, they're like feeling what's, what's a feeling, you know, they, they don't understand what that means. Um, and so then when, if you look at that and you look at the value of it, if you believe in it, then behind every brand I've ever worked with, there's a story and it has to be authentic. It can't be some made up bullshit story that you say, this will really sound good. Like I was dangling from a cliff and I couldn't find the right carabiner. So I decided to create one, you know, yeah. uh, most stories are so authentically simple. It's awesome. And when you combine a good story that gives meaning to the brand. In other words, I first want to create an emotion in you. Then I want you to check out the brand. And now I want you to connect that emotion to meaning. And now the two of them will separate you from the commodity, right? And so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know of a brand that's worth talking about that doesn't have a story. Yeah. And, and so the story, would you say that's usually grounded in the founders, like the, the, the values they have, like where, where is the story normally coming from? You know, I don't think it's initially in the values. It can be like when I think about Patagonia, for example, and I think about um, the two people that started that company and they talked about how they wanted to do it. Right. Um, I had a recent conversation with John Wilson at Stance and him and his four co-founders spent five months five months, who does this? Talking about the values that they believed in that would guide their hiring principles 
of the talent they were going to bring on board. Very, very purposeful. Um, and, and they had a story as well. Uh, usually nine times out of 10, it comes from the founders. The only time it doesn't is when like oil meets water or two alchemists meet. And it was, it's a meeting that created, you know, spontaneous combustion. And there isn't a great story there, but there's individual stories of those two founders and they decided to come together. Uh, but more often than not, I would say 90% of the time, the stories are related to the founders. Right. And, and I think there's a misconception sometimes. So storytelling is obviously, I, I feel like when we're creating that story, that does give a lot of energy towards the direction that the brand is developed. Is that, do you agree with that? You know, that's a good question. Um, first of all, you can't create, you can't develop a story. <clears throat> the story is there. It's already there. Yeah. It's already there. So in other words, when like when I was working with Pure Vita and they just had come back from a surf trip to Costa Rica and they came to my office, one of them did and said, Hey, we're selling these bracelets to pay for our trip. And then we're going to go get real jobs. And I was like, well, where'd you get the bracelets? This guy named Jesus, where on the beach in Costa Rica, what does Pure Vita mean? Oh, that's something they say down there. It means have good life. Good life. And so without them realizing it, the story was already done. And so years later, when the brand started to take off and they just fine tuned that story, but it was the same story. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people miss the boat on that and you go to many of these sites and they don't have the story anywhere. I mean, there's the written story, but I feel like that it gets, doesn't that get kind of injected across like everything that they're doing, like it kind of feeds the engine a little bit. It can, and it also cannot. In other words, if the original founders are gone, I believe the story starts to get lost because the current leadership team may or may not care about the story. They're executing on metrics and KPIs. And they're like, who cares about a story of these two guys in the fifties? This is 2021. Like we need to be rock and roll. And I think you need to keep thin links to that story. I think it grounds the brand. Uh, I, I see some people try to hide the story over time as they believe their company transforms. I believe your story should just get louder over time um, because it's going to be the one, it's the one thing you authentically hold and that no one can take away. You just need to make sure that the story is told in a relevant way. That's all. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, so what you're saying is it becomes a point of differentiation for people that are interested in the, in whatever you're offering. Right. So if you're going to compare to. Exactly. Like let's, let's, let's use IBM as an example. Yeah. You know, if, if, if some people would believe that IBM may or may not be as creative or innovative as it is today. Right. And you might say, well, why should we talk about Tom Watson? You know, one of the founders of IBM, like it's not relevant. But what Tom Watson was doing in his time was super innovative, right? And so you would bring that innovation alive and say, it's always been in our DNA. It's not so much about more about Tom. It's more about the initial spark and that innovation is still there. And it's so deep in our, in our company, in our culture that, that, you know, we're just a a great company because of it. And if you're a customer of ours, you'll see it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But if you listen to IBM today, like, honestly, if you said to me, Fern, for a million dollars, what do you think separates IBM from their competition today? I have no clue. (laughs) I'm not saying they're not a good company. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know what differentiates them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. What does differentiate them? And, you know, when we're thinking about those stories, I always found that I think you made a great point that the stories we tell will demonstrate something. It's not necessarily about that person, but it's about the demonstration of a, like a meaning or a point that came, comes out of it, right? That is an expression people can emotionally link to. Well, and they emotionally link it to the brand. You you don't want to like have a, a founder of IBM be the brand. Right. You want to have what that person did or didn't do or how they did it, you know, and that then internalizes itself into the brand. And then it gets externalized through the marketing messaging, right? Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I watch people that could be telling amazing stories about their brand, not even use a story, not even talk about, you know, kind of the DNA of their brand. They're like, you know, let's just our products in the right place at the right time. Let's just hammer the marketing home. Let's outspend everybody else. And it works for a while until there's competition. Right. And everybody always assumes there's never going to be like crazy competition. Like if you're in a narrow market and you think you've, you know, got relationships with all the suppliers and nobody can come in. All, all Apple has to do is buy someone. Yeah. And you're like, uh oh, you know, now all of a sudden you, you don't have, you know, a $50 million competitor. You have a hundred billion dollar competitor with deep pockets that can say, I want your market. And at that point it's too late to build a brand. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I spoke to a, a team, a founder of a company called love is project. And within her first two years, she, they sell bracelets that say love. That's it. Just like your Pura Vita bracelets. Right. And she made a mil, over a million dollars in the first two years. Then she got into Oprah's magazine, all this stuff. She was traveling the world. She's a traveler. She went to different cultures and asked, what does love mean to you? And she built this brand. And the story was about what love means to people around the world. So she was like, Adam, we're basically a media company that tells stories and we just happen to sell bracelets, <laughs> you know, and yeah. the whole thing is consistent with their, everything they do. And you can just see the power of like people fall in love with the idea and the story that she's sharing. And they just consistently keep it alive. And what they're, what they're doing is they're absolutely leveraging the emotion that people might have, not about love for their brand, but love for other people, love for other things. And so it's a very clever twist. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. But I've seen entrepreneurs with really, really good products uh, not make it because they can't figure out how to tell the story in an emotional and strong way that separates them from the competition. And eventually they meet tons of competition and they go away. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that person is lights out. They didn't make it. Meanwhile, I have two guys over here that created a brand on a surf trip out of threaded bracelets. No disrespect, but that's a hundred million dollar company today. Like is the universe crazy? I think you made just an incredible point right there is that brands who are transactional and data driven, great. But if we're not getting in touch and connecting with people through the stories and provoking some kind of emotion for the brand, that sooner or later, we're going to fade out in the competition. Well, sooner or later, it's possible. The worst place for a company is when they get into a position of either commodity or price. And if you don't have a strong brand, then you're just going to be nickel and dimed to death. And you're going to hear things from companies like, well, we need to now do free shipping or we need to lower our prices by X or, or whatever it might be, or we need to bundle. 
Those are conversations a brand never has. When was the last time you bought an iPad or a MacBook from Apple and it was on sale? They don't do that. <laughs> they don't do it. Every now and then they might throw you some air earbuds or, they, or AirPods or they might throw you something, but they will not discount the price, period. And I just think that's genius. I agree. I mean, I love that confidence and I know they obviously they're easy to talk about because they built a brand that people just, you know, adore. Um, and I, I like to kind of just transition a little bit of this conversation into, you know, obviously a brand fires off many different signals that represent how it feel like to create that feeling from people, right? You got the visual, we got contextual, we got all these things. They're grounded in these stories and stuff. Um, I think a tough part for a tough spot for people is two things. One, how narrow do we go on a target audience when we're considering our, our brand and two, how we're occupying, what space we're occupying in someone's mind. So the positioning. So I just want to touch on those two things at a, at a high yeah. level and get your insights on well, maybe how you approach that with people. Let's talk about positioning first. I mean, yeah. I remember reading uh, Reese's and Trout's book on positioning. And before I read that, I didn't as a marketer understand that there were limited there was limited mind from a consumer. I, the whole idea of, of three top brands on the ladder had never occurred to me. It was like, I'm going to take this money. I'm going to go into the marketplace and I'm going to be number one or number two. And, and then I was like, oh, if I can't be number one or number two or number three, I can't be on that ladder. And if I can't be on that ladder, can I create a new ladder? Right. I mean, that's what vitamin water did. It was genius at the time. Everybody was like vitamins and water. That's so stupid. But the water category was insane and it was genius. They said, well, we're not going to be a top brand in just water. How many vitamin water brands are there? None. All right, let's grab that niche. Let's initially, and this goes back to your first question. Let's initially, initially only focus on a health conscious app athletic person for vitamin water. I mean, that's who their original positioning was. They got LaDaniel Thompson, football player, and they focused on such a narrow niche. If you're successful in the narrow niche of a large industry, then you can almost look at the consecutive other niches you will go to. Like I, I used to tell Pure Vita, get 16 to 22. Get young females 16 to 22 for the bracelets. When we got them, then we'll go after the moms, but through them. Then we'll go after the boyfriends. Then we'll go after the uncles and the birthdays and Mother's Day. Eventually, we'll have the whole market, but you can't have the whole market in the first year, two, three. Right. Own your niche. And so every, like when I have students that come into my office, when they used to come into my office and they will again in the fall, they'd be like, yeah, I want to talk to you about a startup I have. I go, great. Who are you focused on? They go, everybody. And I go, okay, I'm going to ask you one more time. And if you don't answer this question appropriately, you're going to have to get out. <laughs> I go, who are your first 1,000 customers? And, you know, focus, focus, focus. If you're a good brand, then eventually you can spread out. But you got to own your niche first. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm mentoring someone right now who's doing in the commercial electric vehicle space. And um, I remember when, when we were so narrow, Adam, it was – commercial electric vehicles only for airports <laughs> okay. and that level of focus in just three years has gotten him to over 50 million in real revenue wow 
Yeah, it's all focused on was airports. Just the airports. And and as long, I mean, and I love hearing that because I have these conversations with people a lot where there's a lot of fear of going narrow because it's like this FOMO of missing out on the market where they don't realize that the more specialized that the the better off you're going to be, especially. And I like what you said, like you're not stuck there forever. You can always expand to new segments, but does that work for a service company as well? So if you're an agency and you're running, um, you know, you're doing something specific for the medical industry, all of a sudden on your website, that's great. They say you specialize in the medical industry. You don't want to suddenly be like, well, I do this, 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 and this. So how do you expand markets in that sense? You know, when you said service industry, the first word or the first thought that jumped into my head was accountants, you know, and I don't know why I I wasn't thinking agencies. And I was like, well, let's say I'm an accountant and I specialize. If I'm an accountant and I specialize in medical companies, I'm just making that up. Then I get an expertise. I get passed around but I can pretty much easily segue. If I'm a marketing agency and I've specialized on medical companies, I gotta be really careful, but I can start doing outliers. In other words, I've watched someone who who worked with medical device companies, and then they looked at companies in their space and they were like, what company is innovating? And they picked on Dexcom and Dexcom was making software and wearable consumer devices for diabetes for the first time. So they purposely then chased Dexcom in the medical space, but because they knew they were evolving into software or evolving into consumer. So they were like, this is going to be our bridge as well. So as an agency, you can select a client and that client can take you into the next segment Hmm. and there'll be a client from your current segment. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. I like that. So, I mean, there's just some creative thinking basically like uh, how you're looking at the market and finding your path forward basically. Right. Oh, it's so strategic. Like when we started our agency, you know, I mean, we're in Silicon Valley. We're in like a little tiny office space. There's only like five of us. We're all pretty good at what we do, but you know, there's nothing as humbling as leaving a big company or a big agency and being in a small space (laughs) with like a third of the budget and it's on you. Like there it's on you. And I remember, you know, um, talking to my other partners and saying, well, you know, who are we going to focus on? And they were like, well, it's, we all love tech. So let's focus on all the emerging tech. So we started calling on Adobe, Borland, Logitech. I mean, these were all startups at the time and we were a startup agency. So we were like, you know what? Nobody's going to believe that we can do consumer. We're in Silicon Valley. Let's go get emerging tech and let's build their brands. They got nothing to lose. They got no money. They got very little money. We're not going to make a lot of money, but we're going to build our cred. And we wanted to be seen as a tech agency, not just only to do tech, but we wanted to have kind of a tech image behind us. Like we're using technical infrastructure. We're doing 3D modeling. You know, like we're doing this crazy tech and we had tech clients. So it was believable. And that honestly, I'll be honest with you. That's what allowed us as one of the first agencies as an integrated shop to go public. Why would a marketing agency go public out of Silicon Valley in 1995? Makes no sense. No sense. Unless you looked at our the infrastructure we were running the agency on and all the software we were using, we were paperless. Most agencies are not paperless. Uh, we were distributed. We had no central headquarters. And so, you know, the analysts and Goldman and Sequoia, they were like, 
this is the agency of the future, you know, <laughs> and that was actually an ad age story. And was it, I don't know. Did we use technology to run the shop? Yes. Did we use technology to cut our bones? Yes. But it was only so that we could get to Williams Sonoma, United, McDonald's, all these other consumer brands. Uh, and we, and it, it was funny because all it took was one account. We had 19 tech uh, clients and we purposely chased to bust it out. We chased United Airlines hard to redo the entire brand. And because of a personal relationship with one of the founders of all the top agencies in the world, we got it. And I remember, you know, what that did for us. Like it, it just told that world we're coming, we're coming to consumer. Interesting. And, yeah. And so having the tech image you think helped bridge your. Dude, if you look up past articles on CKS partners, you will be shocked that wired covered us ad age. And it was all like the tech agency, the agency of the future, the interactive agency, of the future, it totally positioned our brand to have an edge. Uh, and allowed us to run into consumer because you know what the consumer brands thought? These guys are so deep in tech. They know what the future is going to look like. They know how to distribute <laughs> digital assets. So consumer came running at us. Yeah. Adam, we never ran an ad. We went to a billion in revenue, not funny media money, a billion in hard revenue. That's incredible. And did you plant seeds for that story to get around? Once we saw that the, this tech edge was separating us, because we used to tell people like we're the first integrated marketing agency and people would be right. like, well, I don't give a shit. Like advertising yeah, is going to rock forever. Integrated stupid. As soon as we added tech to our integrated story, it just changed for us. We were now seen as a futurist. You know, we were right up there at that time period. People would people would pay us to come in and sit with their CEO and say, what does the next five years look like? Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why we grew so fast is because we believed so radically in change. We were telling CEOs in 95, 96, that someday your media spend is going to be 80% digital. And some of them would look at us like we were high other agencies would say you are definitely high uh, and it took a little longer, but we're now approaching what? 60%, 65%. Oh, I mean, I think that's going to continue. I mean, yeah, there's marketing all around, but I think that digital ad spend is going to start being the bulk of it. And when it does, you're going to see all the small players on Facebook and YouTube. They're going to get crushed on prices because all the big players are going to eat up the inventory. Yep. Yeah, I can see that coming down the pipeline. So, wow, that's interesting. Now you did work with, um, you know, Amazon and Yahoo, right? I, I really, yeah. I, yeah so um, the Yahoo story was quite interesting. The, that was such a mess. I mean, um, one of the partners called me and said, will you take a meeting at Yahoo? I go, what? What, who? I, I didn't even know what he said. I thought he misspoke. So he goes at Yahoo. I go, what's a Yahoo? And he goes, it's these two guys doing this web kind of index at Stanford. And I was like, why are you calling me? I'm up in Portland. You got two offices in Silicon Valley. Well, they won't take the meeting. Everybody's busy, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I, I decided to do it. I go down there, go to a meeting. It's these two guys, David and Jerry. 
and there's no strategy, there's no revenue, there's no business model. And they're like, we have 50,000 daily visitors. And I'm like, what are you trying to sell? Nothing, you know? And we went round and round. We eventually developed their logo. We developed, redeveloped their website to make it more clear. Uh, we started giving them ideas on business models. We were like, you know, you should be doing advertising. You should create a grid over here on the right. You know, you should create better search. Search sucks. Uh, right now, it, the, the search returns are terrible. And at the time, there was probably about 40 search companies yeah. in 90, 95, 96. And uh, I, it was so hard working with them. They were so ill-prepared. For, to work with professionals that after about six months, I just called my partner up and said, look, we've taken, they couldn't even pay us. So we took shares, which by the way, that paid off later. Uh, and, but I can't work with them anymore. And he was like, come on. And I go, no, I'm done. I go, every meeting I go to is like a CF and they're arguing, they're yelling at each other. They're yelling at us. We're yelling at them. I go, they are not prepared. They need a dad. You know, and that's, I think that's about the time their first CEO came in, Tim Kugel, and he was actually good for them, but I couldn't take it anymore. I had creatives that were like, we're quitting. Yeah, forget They it. were really good creatives. And I'll tell you, when you have great creatives and you're doing good work, you let the client go. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. Yeah, I never let a creative go. If I had an issue, I'm not talking about like, you know, an attitude issue. I'm talking about you look at the work and it's spot on and the client's shitting on it. It's like, you got to question the client. You got to say, wait a minute, this is spot on. It's strategically perfect. And the client's saying, I don't like blue, like, what? <laughs> you know? And so I, I've let, I've, I let, I've let lots of clients go. I've only been fired like twice in my entire career, but I have let about 40 clients go. Yeah. That, and that's good. I mean, cause you know what you stand for and you know the work that you do. So it's it, to be able to walk away. Is... It's not arrogance, Adam. It's no. not arrogance. So you, you put up with a ton of pain. I mean, I put up with three years of pain on one particular client that was so big. It was actually funding our Northwest expansion. Uh, but when it, but after almost three years, I had a hollowed out creative team that when I sat down with them one day, they looked dead. I mean, they did, they were just like, you know, we're just getting our ass handed to us all the time. And on that particular day, uh, I landed another client and that, that really stabilized us in the Northwest. And I turned to my creative director and I said, when we go to that meeting tomorrow, he's like, yeah, I go, we're resigning. And he was like, really? I go, yeah. He goes, that's awesome. And so we went to that meeting the next day the clients walking us through all this crap. And at one point I just raised my hand and said, Hey, you know, we're actually uh, resigning the account. And they were like, what? You're like the best agency we've ever had. I go, you've literally just almost destroyed us. And now I understand why you've ground through all these other agencies and why we'll do a good transition. We wish you the best. We can no longer work with you. Yeah, adios. Wow. Yeah, yeah that takes a lot of guts. Um, I know you're tight on time, so we'll. Uh, I want to be respectful of that. We're going to wrap up. Listen, um, where can people learn more about your books? Guys, he has tons of great books, several several of them, the latest being Brands and Bullshit. Um, that was a well, actually, the latest one was actually actually came out last year, which was a book on culture, which a lot of founders don't read startup culture mindset. Um, oh, there you go. You know, BernieSchroeder.com. You can find them there. You can find the four of them on Amazon. Uh, but if you want to learn more about me and how I think, 
and how I look at the world, I would go to BernieSchroeder.com. I put a lot of my honest thinking there on several different topics. Uh, and then they can choose to do whatever after that. Um, yeah. And one last thing to wrap up. I'm always like, I find that the positioning is such an important part of a process. Um, any, do you use any particular tools or have any tips on, um, that might help people, um, kind of really not master, but at least get more clarity on that positioning for them? I tell you, it's not even branding. It's just good strategic marketing. There's two tools that I use pretty consistently. And obviously I'm doing a competitive analysis of a marketplace first, right? I use two tools. My first tool is actually um, a simple marketplace quadrant tool. It's got four boxes and it just shows the whole marketplace, right? And I use what I think are two words or two attributes that are most important to the consumer. Is it price? Is it quality? Is it luxury? Is it basic? And then I take the entire competition and I put them in, in the marketplace. And then I look for gaps. I look for gaps in the marketplace and say, is there an opportunity to go there? Do we want to go there? The second thing I do when I've completed that analysis from a positioning perspective, I say, okay, if we're going to go into that area, who has the lead in that area on a ladder today or who has the perception or is there an opportunity for me to create a new ladder? And if it's a new ladder, what do I call it? And would it be relevant to the market? So those are the first two things that kind of pop into my head. What's a marketplace quadrant? Are there any gaps? Because you can't just run in a marketplace and go, oh, I'm doing wheat cereal and, and think anybody gives a shit. You got to grid it out simply it's in the brands and bullshit book. And then yeah. I just do a simple analysis of, can I get into the top three on an existing ladder or in a good way, can I be like a Chobani and can I disrupt the yogurt aisle with Greek, you yep. know, and then I create a new ladder called Greek and I own it, you know, and those are the only two things I look at initially. Yeah, no, that's great. I really appreciate it. So again, thank you for your time. Uh, appreciate you being here and sharing everything. Love all your experience and stuff. So um, thanks again. No, Adam, uh, one, thanks for reaching out and doing it. Uh, two, let me know uh, when you push it live. Absolutely. All right. All thanks, right. Bernard. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the Change Creator Podcast. Visit us at changecreator.com forward slash go big to get access to free downloads and other great resources that will drive your business forward.